Welcome to the Holistic Psychiatry Podcast. I'm Courtney Snyder, a physician and holistic psychiatrist. My work focuses on evaluating and treating adults and children with brain-related symptoms. I do this from a root cause perspective. By root causes, I'm referring to things like nutrient imbalances, hormonal imbalances, imbalances of microbes in the gastrointestinal tract, inflammation, toxicity, trauma, chronic stress, and more. For most people with any chronic health condition, including psychiatric, there is an alignment of root causes. I use the term holistic psychiatry as opposed to functional medicine psychiatry because I believe that to heal and thrive, we need both some scientific details and big picture thinking. To oversimplify, our left brain or left hemisphere wants to learn the details and the science. However, left unchecked, this left brain can take us on a stressful quest to dominate our mind and body through the details of testing, supplements, diet, and avoidance of environmental exposures. Our right brain would have us take a more chilled out, big picture approach. The more we access the right brain, the more we learn to be present in our lives, to experience gratitude, to learn to trust, tolerate uncertainty, and to feel safe in our bodies. In this podcast, I attempt to balance both of these perspectives. Today I'll be speaking with Lynn, a 52-year-old woman who has been on a quest to find answers. For years, she says, I've told doctors and practitioners, I feel like my nervous system is constantly switched on and it feels like an electrical current coursing through my body all the time. I'd love to be able to shut that off or at least turn it down. She'd expressed a desire to participate in this podcast, so we decided to use this opportunity to do a sample consultation. Despite having identified some specific root causes, largely on her own, Lynn feels stuck and unsure how to move forward. My hope today is to show how these issues can relate to one another. A number of the topics we'll be discussing I have previous episodes on. So this episode is really to focus on how these factors can align to contribute to someone's symptoms. As is the case with any consultation, I'm not treating Lynn as a patient, but rather providing her education, including how I might evaluate and address the types of concerns she has. Unless I have seen someone face-to-face, even by video, and have done a more complete evaluation, and thus have a doctor-patient relationship, I'm really unable to provide specific treatment. The same can be said for anyone listening to this podcast. I'm not giving treatment recommendations, but am providing education and information that you might consider discussing with your own doctor. Now I'll summarize the information Lynn shared in advance of our speaking and give you a sense of some of the things that I'm already wondering about for Lynn. Lynn's primary brain symptoms include anxiety, high intertension, low stress tolerance. She also reports struggling with brain fog, fatigue, and insomnia related to body pain. She has a number of physical conditions and symptoms that involve multiple systems in her body. So for example, she has many gastrointestinal symptoms. She's been diagnosed with irritable bowel syndrome, so IBS, 
leaky gut, meaning she has evidence of gut permeability, which would allow food particles to get through her gastrointestinal lining into her bloodstream and create inflammation in other parts of her body. She's been told that she has dysbiosis, which is an imbalance in the gut microbes, and it's possible that she has SIBO, or small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. She has skin-related symptoms, including eczema and psoriasis. She's been diagnosed with interstitial cystitis, which is an inflammatory condition of the bladder. Lynn is highly reactive to chemical smells. She also has overreactivity to bug bites and flushing of the skin of her face. These things, are, for me, are all pointing to mast cell activation. And whenever I think about mast cell activation, I do think about mold toxicity. Not that they always go hand in hand, but in my experience, I find that to be more often the case. Other symptoms include carbohydrate craving, which makes me think about undermethylation and or candida or mold, weight gain, which makes me think about toxicity, inflammation, and or estrogen dominance. She has temperature dysregulation, so she feels cold when it's hot or hot when it's cold, and some evidence of what I would call cranial nerve symptoms. So she has vertigo, she has ringing in her ears, and light sensitivity. So our cranial nerves involve our head and neck, and if we have symptoms in those particular areas, I would wonder about the cranial nerves, and that would make me wonder about either mold toxicity or a history of head or neck trauma. Lynn has also had a history of a blood clot and has a history of having had heavy bleeding with her periods, which again would make me wonder about estrogen dominance. And when I think about someone having estrogen dominance, so higher estrogen relative to progesterone, I would think about a COMT genetic variant. I also think about high copper, which can be caused by high estrogen. And high copper can contribute to inattention, high anxiety, insomnia, and restlessness. And anytime I'm thinking about high copper, I'm also thinking about low zinc because zinc is one of the things that will keep copper in check. And low zinc can also contribute to a lot of immune dysregulation, gastrointestinal symptoms, as well as skin-related symptoms and brain-related symptoms, all of which Lynn has. Lynn provided a timeline in which she describes herself as having been a highly sensitive child. Um, However, generally she was healthy and athletic. In her 20s, she experienced trauma. And by her late 20s, she started to have chronic anxiety and irritable bowel syndrome. Even with trauma, I would still be curious if she had exposure to water damage as well, given that College years are notorious for people having uh, exposure and then an onset of symptoms that occur during college or follow. By her 30s, she started to react to her cat, 
which she had never had problems reacting to before. And soon she was reacting to household products with chemicals. Allergy testing with an allergist was normal. The allergist did suggest multiple chemical sensitivity. She started and benefited from a paleo diet and probiotics for her irritable bowel syndrome, which had worsened over time. At this point, she was largely pursuing answers on her own. She felt that her doctors perceived her as being a hypochondriac as the tests were all coming back normal. On online groups, she learned about mast cell activation, and this diagnosis was supported not through testing, but by a new allergist who felt her symptoms were fitting with this diagnosis. Lynn found her way to a functional medicine doctor who diagnosed her with leaky gut, dysbiosis, an imbalance of gut microbes, and gut inflammation. Currently, she's using two interventions to calm her nervous system, and both of these involve neuroplasticity, so the ability of our nervous system to rewire itself. And the first is limbic system retraining. So the limbic system is the part of our nervous system that senses threat and turns on this um, threat response in the body. The other is accessing the vagus nerve. And the vagus nerve is what puts us into rest and digest. And when it's not easily being accessed, we can go into fight or flight or even shut down. Lynn's labs show from her genetic reports that she is homozygous, meaning she has a variant from her mother and her father for the MTHFR C677T gene. And this is the primary variant that would impact one's ability to methylate. And we need methylation to break down histamine, to detoxify. It can impact neurotransmitter functioning, and it can impact the expression of other genes. Lynn did cite a number of undermethylation traits, including obsessive-compulsive tendencies, perfectionism, dietary inflexibility, being very strong-willed, competitive at sports, calm demeanor with high inner tension, high accomplishment in her family, seasonal allergies, and a good response to SSRIs or serotonin reuptake inhibitors. However, she also describes having some symptoms of overmethylation. She's highly artistic and creative. She has some hyperactivity, high energy, can be verbose. She has high empathy for others. She has food and chemical sensitivities and an absence of seasonal allergies and has had some adverse reactions to serotonin-increasing medications and supplements. Her next variants on her genetic report are fitting with that. So though she's under-methylated, seemingly, um, she has uh, she is also homozygous for COMT, which is responsible for metabolizing dopamine, norepinephrine, and epinephrine. So these are like adrenaline and dopamine is what helps us focus. So with this can come certain strengths and abilities. Um, however, to an excess can cause high anxiety. Um, COMT is also 
the enzyme responsible for breaking down estrogen and phenols in certain gut microbes. Lynn is also homozygous for MAOA, which is responsible, again, for breaking down dopamine, norepinephrine, but also serotonin. So these last two are likely to be playing a big role in Lynn's symptoms. However, they haven't always. So that will be a question as to why these particular genes seem to be expressed now. On GI map and an organic acids test show that she has overgrowth of certain bacteria. Lynn, thank you for volunteering to participate. I, and I'm sure the people listening, really appreciate it. My pleasure. I thank you for having me. I will have shared a summary that you shared with me, but I thought, in your own words, what your hope is on having this conversation. I started out going to doctors, you know, traditional allopathic doctors for these random symptoms and They performed a bunch of tests and nothing ever really showed up. And so I got kind of frustrated with the whole medical system and uh, started doing my own research on my symptoms and came across some different things more in the holistic and um, functional medicine worlds. And things started making sense, but there were so many pieces. Just trying to piece it all together has been my biggest challenge I don't like to just guess at these things, and I always question why. So if, if the doctor tells me I have IBS, I, don't, I can't just be okay with that. I need to know why. And I think that being why of everything has kind of led me to this point of, of where I'm at right now, of trying to figure out from a more functional and holistic approach, what is the root cause of all these things? Like I feel like there has to be something now I have the genetic data, which mm-hmm. which explains to me the SNPs that could be affecting and kind of causing all these issues that I've been having. So I know that probably the trauma and different things in my life kind of activated these. I don't know where to go with the information. Okay. Thank you. You have already a nice general understanding of epigenetics and this idea that we can have these variants and that They don't necessarily have to be expressed, many of them, and especially the ones that we think about in functional medicine psychiatry, the ones that relate to methylation, detoxification, but also to um, the variants that relate to neurotransmitter functioning, Mm -hmm. of which yours are quite remarkable. So we'll talk about that. You find yourself with those test results... Um, your variant reports, an understanding that you have symptoms of mast cell activation and multiple chemical sensitivity, and then wanting to know how to move forward. And as many people who listen closely to this podcast, there is a need to understand the whys. And mm-hmm. rarely is it just one underlying root cause, but there can be an underlying root cause that's causing other underlying root causes or or amplifying them. Mm -hmm. And so as we go through some of the questions that I have for you, it's 
to help me understand if there's, for example, a deeper root cause to your mast cell activation symptoms in addition to the trauma that you've experienced. With mast cell activation, there there can be a genetic vulnerability. There can be history of early trauma, attachment-related issues, or tr- later trauma. But in in my experience, water damage, exposure to water damage, and mold toxicity is extremely common in terms of driving mast cell activation. And it doesn't mean for people that it's one or the other trauma or exposure to water damage. Most of the people that I see, it would be be both. And again, this is where there can be multiple factors aligning. So have you had, to your knowledge, exposure to water damage and buildings or cars? It's extremely common. Like a mold inspector would probably say it's 75 to 100% of homes. However, not everyone's susceptible. So not everyone's becoming sick because of it in the same way. Mm-hmm. Is there a way to know if you're susceptible to it or not? There's there's a way to check for mycotoxins or mold toxins in the urine. And there there are genetic tests that many of us don't use and don't find terribly reliable that can see if someone has a genetic vulnerability. However, mm-hmm. I've seen many people with mold toxicity that didn't have the genes for that. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that's not how we would evaluate it as much as okay. um, check for urine mycotoxins. And I would say for anyone that I see that has mast cell activation at this point in my practice, I recommend testing for mold toxins. Okay. Because it's just such a common trigger. Yeah, I, I, um, I mean, I can remember living in one house in particular that was very um, humid, <laughs> if you will. There's a lot of moisture, and I remember finding mold a few times, but I never felt like I was affected by it. You know, like some people get really sick when they're exposed, um, and at that time, I wasn't. Um, and, and Lynn, when would that have been in your timeline? Like, yeah, when I was early twenties. Okay, early twenties. Because I'm fifty three now. So, so when I when I plotted out your timeline, it was your late twenties that you started to have the chronic anxiety and IBS, and you wouldn't have to have allergy symptoms per se. So that is a mold related symptom. Is if someone has mold allergy. But what I'm talking about is mold toxicity, where you can be acquiring the toxins over time, and then some people even become colonized with mold. And and then once a threshold is reached or another event comes on board, then things can be kind of taken to another level as far as the, I'm going to say the limbic system. So that's the part of the brain that perceives threat. And so if you have an internal ongoing threat, that can start to increase not only mast cell activation, but just anxiety by itself. And we'll talk about how the variant report would fit into this. Um, But it would be something that I would wonder for you if, was that the only environment that you can think of 
where I mean, there were a couple other places that, you know, I can remember just seemed damp. Um, but I don't really remember, like there was no, I wasn't exposed to anything that was flooded that I know of or anything like that. But I am curious. I was curious about mold also, but my doctors never really thought that would, like they looked at all the other things I had going on. And I think they, they had thought they had the answers in front of them. So we never tested for mold. Um, sure. Because I didn't think I was really exposed to it, but there were some, you know, I, I didn't think they were major exposures, but maybe it was just enough if I'm sensitive to it. Right. And it can be a roof leak. It can be a pipe leaking. I mean, because it, it, the, and it's not outdoor molds, it's molds within a contained space. So mm-hmm. that's why we say water damaged buildings, because that's really where the toxic molds that are different than the molds out in the environment that have kind of checks and balances. But these particular water damage molds are spewing off spores with toxins on them. So it can, it, it doesn't have to be what people imagine is like mold growth on the walls. And your point about the doctors feeling like they had reason from the information that they'd have, we all have our own perspectives, obviously. My own experience with treating mold toxicity, which came about because I had it myself and it's what led to my own mast cell activation, is that it can be the deepest underlying root cause, even to the gut microbial issues or to the the immune dysregulation or to the hormonal dysregulation. So that's why I say People can be getting to root causes, but maybe not getting to the the deeper root cause of those root causes. Does that make Mm -hmm. sense? Yes. Mm -hmm. And not unlike the variant reports, it it is testing that people can order on their own. And I would say in terms of functional medicine doctors, and I probably wouldn't have been cognizant of it five years ago, but for having it myself, but I would say at this point, most functional medicine doctors are much more aware um, and many more are getting trained in evaluating and treating mold toxicity. Mm -hmm. So some of this, it's an evolving (laughs) field of medicine. Mm -hmm. And so answers that people weren't able to come upon a few years ago, they may be able to much more easily find, even with the same doctor, potentially. Mm -hmm. Can I ask uh, another question about that? Sure. Um, So I guess one thing that made me always kind of turn away from that possibility is that that was such a long time ago, but that doesn't really matter if you have all these other factors. It could be that could have kind of kicked it off, kicked all these things off, and then they've all just kind of built onto it. So it doesn't really matter that it was, you know, 25, 30 years ago. Is that right? Well, the toxins don't necessarily go away on their own. So you could be out of an exposure and still be carrying the toxins. Um, They go from the liver, gallbladder, bound to bile salts into the gastrointestinal tract, but bile salts are reabsorbed. And so for the most part, the toxins get reabsorbed as well. 
And if someone's colonized, meaning if someone has mold in their sinuses or gastrointestinal tract, then they could have a source of toxicity within them. And that, that we find to be the case for many, if not most, adults that have had a significant exposure. Okay. So, so someone could have an exposure in childhood and, and even start to have, for example, let's say ADHD symptoms, because mold can cause that. You know, they could be having problems that are evolving over time, but also be having other factors that then come on board, um, if not more mold exposure. Okay. Does that answer your question? Yes. Yeah, thank you. And and I would say, you know, mold toxins are a biotoxin, and they're not the only biotoxin, but in my work, I would say they're the most common one causing brain-related symptoms, but Lyme has biotoxins and then the co-infections. So for you, because you mentioned in your history about having a cat, Bartonella would be a consideration. Your symptoms, to me, don't sound as fitting for Bartonella. And there is testing for that. We usually use the Igenics lab. People can have both mold and Bartonella. And unless someone's symptoms are especially severe, which Bartonella can cause severe, severe depression and suicidal thinking, unless somebody's symptoms are such that it would warrant treating both simultaneously. Generally, we would treat mold first because it will, because of the way it dysregulates the immune system, someone may not need treatment for something like Bartonella. You know, getting their immune system back on track can often be primarily what's needed. And the treatments for Bartonella can include antibiotics. There's herbal treatments as well, but antibiotics could potentially be problematic in treating mold and and what often accompanies it is candida. Mm-hmm. Is is there a specific urine mycotoxin test that you recommend to to your patients? I usually am recommending the real time test. It's a test that I mean, I order it for patients in my practice, but it can be ordered directly um, without a physician. Was the trauma that you're describing, was that, was that also in your early 20s? Um, yeah, I mean, I had a couple childhood traumas, um, but I didn't really feel... Um, you know, long-term effects from those, I just kind of, they kind of rolled off my back, you know, and just moved on. Um, but I, I did have some relationship traumas, which were probably more severe for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and those started, yeah, they started when I was young, definitely in my 20s. So you're, since you're doing the DNRs, you're familiar with the limbic system, correct? Mm-hmm. Correct. Yeah, I'm so, actually doing the Gupta training. Okay, I'm sorry. Yeah, I should have. After I said DNRS, I was thinking you might not be doing DNRS. It's <laughs> the only limbic Similar. system yeah. training program there is. Okay. If you can just imagine that while tra- traumas that we experience can have an effect on the limbic system, so can 
um, internal threats like biotoxins. And, and for some people, even structural issues that are making their body f- feel unsafe. And I wanted to ask you if, if you've ever had any history of head or neck trauma, because our vagus nerve you know, goes down through our neck. And if people have had a history of head or neck trauma, that can impact how easily they're accessing their vagus nerve. And, and if the vagus nerve is not well accessed and the vagus nerve puts us into rest and digest, then we can go into that fight or flight response like you've described. Yeah, actually I I have, um, one time for sure, I was about 26, and I had a, a water skiing accident where I basically got whiplash when I fell, um, and that was pretty severe, although I didn't go to the doctor for a few days, and by then, he just gave me some anti-inflammatories and put a neck brace on, and it just healed, you know, on its own. Um, okay. And okay. I think once when I was a kid, also like young teens, um, I was on a friend's shoulders and they dropped me and I fell and kind of smacked my head. I don't know if it really injured my back, but I did kind of like see stars for a minute. Um, Mm -hmm. And again, I didn't do anything about that. So (laughs) yeah, those are the two instances I can remember. Okay. So in the next episode, I'm anticipating that I'll be talking about what's called cranial compliance with a colleague of mine who's a physical therapist who specializes in head and neck issues. And from him, I've learned about cranial compliance where if we've had head or neck trauma, it can cause a little bit of constriction of the covering under our skull that basically protects our brain. It's a protective reaction. That Even that can be affecting the vagus nerve. And there's more details about that, which we'll talk about. But we were both commenting how many of the people that we see that fall into the sort of chronic complex illness, you know, having multiple systems impacted, seem to have had a history of head or neck trauma emotional trauma, and a toxicity, like those three mm-hmm. things together. And we have, we have tools for, for all of those. And, but since, as you and I are talking about, like connecting some of these dots, I would say that's a relevant part of your history and a potential area of benefit as far as treatment. Uh, it's one of those things that may not have ever been problematic, but for a combination with biotoxin and or emotional trauma. Does mm-hmm. that... And and I've mentioned it too for you because you said you don't sleep well because of body pain. Mm-hmm. And if you've had a whiplash injury, um, that could certainly be creating a fibromyalgia type picture. Mm-hmm. The treatment that Dr. Bray uses is really strategies to increase that cranial compliance. He's a physical therapist that's trained in a technique out of the Netherlands called Krafta. And there are also, however, osteopathic doctors 
who specialize in cranial sacral manipulation. Now, this isn't the same as cranial sacral therapy. And the other is FSM or frequency specific microcurrent, but it came out of the work of fibromyalgia induced by cervical trauma causing body pain. And so that's sort of the the best studied use of FSM, even though it has many, many other implications at this point. So if you if you do listen to this upcoming episode, we talk about what's called central sensitization, and that's where um, a particular part of the brain can become sensitized from toxicity, from trauma, physical or emotional, and that that can then impact the experience of pain in the body. Do you get more pain after you've been at the computer? And I don't just mean on your right shoulder or do you know what I mean? That right arm that you might be using a mouse. Do you get body pain or headaches or any symptoms that seem to be exacerbated by the computer or or EMF, you know, Wi-Fi or cellular cell phones? Right. No, not that I've noticed. Okay. Are you still having your cycle? No, I'm not. Okay. In the past, did you have symptoms that related to your cycle? As I did have the typical, you know, heavy periods and cramping, uh, painful cramps. But and did your anxiety change? Um. Yeah, and I think maybe that was the connection between the the increase in my IBS symptoms related to my cycle. I think it was an anxiety thing. Currently, are you having gastrointestinal symptoms? Um, yeah, something that has changed for me as well. Like I said, when I was younger, and it kind of that kind of was the first symptom that caught my attention mm-hmm. was I had IBS D. Somehow, I, I I think I had gotten out of some stressful situations and that kind of eased up. But I still have some symptoms, uh, different symptoms now, mostly just bloating. I'm not, it seems to be worse when I eat, but I feel like I always am bloated. Um, Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, sometimes some pain in my stomach. Okay. What generally is your diet like now? I know you've made changes over time. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm gluten-free and I try to be dairy-free. I try to be sugar-free. Um, and I try not to eat processed foods too much, Mm -hmm. but I also struggle a lot with my diet. I've been a sugar addict my whole life. Sugar and carbs were my main staple. So it's really hard for me to stick with this. I've never been a big, um, vegetable and fruit eater, so it's hard for me to incorporate enough of those in my diet. It's I've never really been a big meat eater. I just don't crave meat. I don't ever really have a desire for it. So I know I'm not getting enough protein. So I would say even though I've made some changes and I try to stay away from inflammatory things, my diet has it needs a lot of improvement still. As far as your variant report... We don't know exactly which of our variants are getting expressed other than by looking at our symptoms. And 
Of your variants, you know, one of the variants would suggest that you could benefit from more protein if you have this variant. And two of your others suggest that too much protein could be problematic. And that's kind of reflective of your point earlier that some of the information that you see in your results gives you conflicting information as to what to do. Exactly. And so when I think about your your symptoms, and let's talk about your brain-related symptoms in relation to your genetic report. And I'm only going to hone in on the MTHFR, the COMT, and the MAOA, all three of which you're homozygous for. And with MTHFR, you know, that is the main undermethylation gene, but it's not the only gene that affects methylation. So it is possible to be homozygous even and not be undermethylated. Methylation impacts our ability to break down histamine. So you could feel mast cell activation more than somebody who may not be undermethylated. It impacts our ability to detoxify, but it also impacts our neurotransmitter functioning. And from a brain health standpoint, and this comes out of the work of the Walsh Research Institute, we would not address undermethylation in the same way that medicine doctors who are more focused on the body would address it. And so that's the difference between using folate and not using folate. So we find that if somebody is undermethylated and has low serotonin symptoms, which it sounds like you do from the checklist, the methylation checklist mm-hmm. that you shared. So if you have low serotonin activity and are undermethylated, taking folate would have the potential to decrease serotonin activity further. And so it sounded like you did have a negative response to full of folinic acid was it yes okay and that could be for this reason usually it takes a little bit more time for people to notice that maybe they're more depressed or they're more rigid in their thinking or more inclined to those obsessive compulsive tendencies but if people have a biotoxin on board again mold toxicity then putting them on something that would drive detoxification pathways could just be too much too soon. We have mm-hmm. some people we have to just start with very tiny doses and and maybe not even start it until they're further along in the binder treatment, mm-hmm. which is the binders that we use to draw out the toxins. So there could be a couple of reasons for that. DHA Labs has a Walsh panel where you can check your zinc, copper, whole blood histamine, and even pyrroles. Those are the main things that we think about Okay, from a nutrient standpoint. The zinc level would be particularly important for you because anytime someone has a dysregulated immune system, for what I do, the two areas that I think about are zinc deficiency and mold toxicity just because those are so common in people with brain-related symptoms. And when I say zinc deficiency, I mean not what LabCorp shows. 
the MTHFR variant could be impacting what sounds like low serotonin activity, and it can also be impacting the expression of the other variants. However, the COMT and the MAOA, those variants, I think, are the ones that are giving you this mixed picture because the COMT, it's responsible for metabolizing dopamine and norepinephrine, epinephrine, so what we call catecholamines, and your symptoms sound, your main symptom of that anxiety sounds related to those neurotransmitters. COMT is also responsible for breaking down estrogen. Okay. And so it might explain if you're having the heavy periods or did they, how did they make sense of your blood clot? Did anyone ever check to see if you were estrogen dominant or? No, no, they never checked for anything. (laughs) I do suspect there's a hormonal component to, to your symptoms. Do you feel better now that you're kind of menopausal or postmenopausal? In some ways, yes. Um, Okay. That that would be be fitting. Yeah. That might be the link to why my anxiety has decreased aside from, you know, I'm, I'm out of the traumatic situations, but also my hormones have dropped off. So think about the COMT as like a funnel. So it's a variant that makes an enzyme that has to deal with a lot. Mm -hmm. And so if you think about all the things it has to deal with fitting into a funnel, it's clearing those catecholamines, clearing estrogen, clearing phenols, which are made by particular microbes in our gastrointestinal tract. So if you have dysbiosis or an overgrowth of certain bacteria that make phenols, then that already could be kind of plugged up. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so add stress from trauma, stress from a potential biotoxin, just stress of daily life, estrogen, and a, a chronic microbial gut issue. You know, all that could be keeping your neurotransmitters, dopamine and norepinephrine, from being cleared. Also, it's worth noting that the COMT can be further slowed by high estrogen levels. So this is another reason why when estrogen levels start to drop off, this could cause an improvement in symptoms by allowing that enzyme to work faster, essentially. While the gut microbes can be addressed, biotoxins can be addressed, trauma can be addressed it can take a multifaceted approach to helping that COMT, but also there's ways to support it and to help clear some of those neurotransmitters more directly. MAOA, so you know, is the other gene that's responsible for clearing catecholamines. So you're homozygous for the two variants that we associate with metabolizing catecholamines. Now, MAOA is not responsible for metabolizing estrogen. It is responsible for metabolizing serotonin. So you could see where some of these variants can be a little bit in opposition. And Mm -hmm. the best we can do is to look at 
what someone's symptoms are telling us and how we can make meaning of those variants. Did you want to ask me something else? I, I was just wondering what are the issues with having high dopamine and you know the neurotransmitters related to COMT, MAOA? Like what are the what are the negatives oh. to? So the I'm glad you asked that. So you're asking the symptoms of those variants. Those... Well, yeah, because I'm looking at high artistic or musical ability, high empathy for like I don't think those are bad things. So like no, what's no, the no, negative? no. Yeah, they won't. Right, we don't want to. <laughs> we don't want to mess with those. <laughs> but the high catecholamines are what can be high anxiety, fight or flight, palpitations. For some people, increased blood pressure, body pain, because of that high autonomic state. Headaches can be part of it. And for some people, it can be to the point of paranoia and and even psychosis. Now, it doesn't sound like those are symptoms that you've ever struggled with. But, um, you know, even without it being paranoia or psychosis, it could be ruminations or getting stuck on a particular or a hyper focus or an OCD. Yeah, right. That's almost how I feel about my whole health history. <laughs> like just this quest to try and find the answers. It's just been a bit OCD and just, uh, you know, one rabbit hole after another. Right. You know, and I would say I've historically attributed that because that is the experience of people that have had mast cell activation and these chronic complex issues. However, I am suspecting now that I look more at things like COMT and MAOA, how much that raises, on one hand, the vulnerability, and Mm -hmm. on the other the ability to go after some of this information that's exceedingly stressful and right and i get it <laughs> so, so i mean i can speak to a lot of this personally <laughs> and in my own healing recognizing that if that's left unchecked it is problematic and that really this left brain detail oriented part of ourselves should be in the service of the bigger picture and our ability to learn how to be present, how to be in our body, how to feel safe. And I would say it can become addictive. Right. And I always feel like I run that risk when I talk even and teach about these issues is it it's the piece that people aren't able to find easily. So I try to put a lot of information out there but it can seem to be experiences well these are these are fixes and even the more you can find peace and calm through what you're doing with limbic system retraining and your vagus nerve activities that's going to lower the expression of some of these genes <laughs> And even without, you know, we don't even have to know the variants, but in your case, I think it's particularly good that you got this information because I think it lets you know that you have a vulnerability around this physiologic stress response, that when you experience stress, those catecholamines may not move out as easily, especially 
right now if you have the gut issues and or if you have the mold toxin issues. And two, and you know this, though you might not admit it, (laughs) the COMT and the MAOA, like you're... I mean, I'm sounding like I'm an astrologer at the moment, but that combination is a combination for someone that would have high dopamine activity in the front part of their brain that would make them able to make connections that other people wouldn't necessarily make. So your ability to like navigate your health journey so far is related to these very genes, I would say. That's interesting. Um, one of the first things that I discovered was what's called HSP or highly sensitive person. Yes. And that kind of made sense to me describing who I was. Like it made sense for the first time of this is why I'm so sensitive to everything. Like every one of my senses, I have trouble taking medicine and even supplements um, because I'm so sensitive Um, it's hard for me to find anything that I can tolerate. And also I think part of that is anxiety based as well. I think because I've had bad experiences in the past, I'm afraid to take anything. And so I really prefer to stay away from medicine altogether. I, I, I just, I don't even take ibuprofen or things for headaches. Um, and even with supplements. I'm afraid to take them. I baby step into anything I take. Many people that have these issues with mast cell activation and can't tolerate moving forward with treatment, really the starting places become limbic system retraining and vagus nerve interventions, which you're currently doing. But but those are the starting places. And yes, It's not uncommon to have the high reactivity and then that high reactivity and that experience of being reactive so many times then psychologically can add to the perception of threat associated with supplements or certain foods for some people or certain environments. So I'm glad you brought that up because while there are a number of nutrients and supplements that can help if someone's not in the place to start those, then those would be potentially further down the line if needed. What I could imagine for you as a potential timeline, which obviously when someone's in treatment, it it changes as new information arises, but if you're doing the limbic system retraining and vagus nerve interventions and mast cell symptoms are calming down and then you're able to tolerate some things and let's say in the meantime you find that you have mold toxicity then you would be in a better place to be able to start binders or detoxification support but even before those you should be able to benefit from nutrients to support these variants. Mm -hmm. And then the gut issues could be secondary to mold. If you have mold toxicity, addressing that could be taking care of a lot of these other secondary issues even. Okay. 
doesn't necessarily mean that we have to use toolboxes simultaneously for all these things. Mm-hmm. It can be if somebody has mold and let's say low zinc and even under methylation, it may be a nutrient protocol to be optimizing their zinc, starting to treat mold, knowing that we're going to get to methylation later. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's that's often how it goes. And if somebody has mast cell activation and they're especially sensitive, then implementing the tools to help calm down their nervous system um, before we get to those binders or supplements. I think you're inspiring the way you've sought out your answers and and even the way you've maintained this sense of hope and I would say calm comes through. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Do you feel... Go ahead. Yeah, sometimes it's, you know, it it may look on the outside different than it feels on the inside. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to maintain hope and finding you and finding this information about genetics and all these ties brings me some hope. But at the same time it's still like, there's a lot that I need to look into. And am I ever going to figure this? It's just, it gets overwhelming sometimes. So, right. And and I would say that the things that we've talked about, there are interventions for, and I mean, I understand given what you've been through and where you're at in your journey, it can be hard to have that kind of hope, but I have that for you certainly because I've seen people absolutely improve. I think as much as you can think about ways to take what you're learning in the limbic system retraining and the experience you feel in your body when you are accessing the vagus nerve, and you can be building on that and put this information in a box, in a container that you visit when you need to in a very kind of matter of fact way, like you would in your work and that you not let it seep into your present moments and your daily life because you're already finding answers and you've done a remarkable job and you'll be working with your doctor, but now and going forward, There's so much that you can be impacting through lowering the stress response. Lynn is already very aware of the need to make dietary changes. Many of her cravings likely are related to some of these biochemical and physiologic factors. However, if someone has a gut microbiome issue mold toxicity and or candida, high carb diets will feed those and keep all these biochemical factors at play. So again, to emphasize, we have a degree of control certainly over our stress response as well as our diet. And it can be bidirectional, whereas addressing some of these factors can often help us more easily address our stress response and more easily make the dietary changes. However, if we're not addressing the stress response and not addressing diet, 
then these other pieces alone are typically not impactful. I really appreciate you, Lynn, for volunteering to do this. I I think it'll be extremely helpful to a number of people out there. I hope so, and I appreciate um, you you extending this offer and having me on your podcast. I appreciate it. Though this podcast was about connecting the dots, I do have a number of podcasts that hone in on these specific topics, including many ways to lower the stress response, mast cell activation, mold toxicity, undermethylation, as well as the COMT and MAOA variants. If you'd like to be notified of upcoming episodes, please consider subscribing at CourtneySnyderMD.com. I'm also on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. I look forward to connecting with you there or on a future podcast. Until then, take care.